We are here. We are sitting back in our classroom. Well, you're in the classroom. We're in the studio. Uh, I am your co-host, Professor Adam. And sitting next to me, he's going to be doing the bulk of the talking this episode. Uh, He's got a real tough fantasy matchup this week, and his quarterback's questionable. I can't say that I feel bad in that situation. three guys on my team that are questionable. I got literally a quarterback uh, running my main running back and my main receiver. Yeah, and for people that don't give a shit about fantasy, I really don't blame you for not caring to hear that. Grown men watching other men that are younger than them play football and try to get points off them. Yeah, he's, he's a... A man that is off the market. I'm also a four-time champion, so as far as the make-believe part of it goes, I can make-believe pretty good. I I almost don't even want to give him a rap love this week because we're in competition. But, uh, yeah, he is big pimping on BLADs. Uh, that is Professor Chris. B-L-A-D. Blades? Yeah, it's, it's a be? Jay-Z song. Big pimping? Yeah, well, I know Spinning the song, cheese. but I'm trying to see what, it, what you're spelling. B-L-A-D's. Oh, D's because D E S D. Okay, yeah. I got you. Yeah, I I don't understand rap lyrics most of the time, but eventually you, don't have to, you just have to listen yeah. to them. It just sounds great. Well, thank you for that marvelous introduction. Man versus nature. Um, I think it was. Has <clears> it? I I already got to disagree. I don't even want to start this way to disagree. This is man versus or nature versus technology. Okay. Well, initially, now it might be, but and I don't even think it's like a competition or anything like that. I think it's just one of those situations. You know, we've discussed like civilizations, cultures. We've discussed wonders of the world and that kind of stuff. But I think sometimes you kind of forget that there's actual like natural wonders of the world. Just shit that we have really no... We can explain it scientifically, but it's just a modern marvel. Like, you just stare at it, and it's like, what the... Or an ancient marvel. It's like, what the fuck is that, and how did it get there? Like, it's beyond ancient. Like, it existed there, like, no one will be able to see it change. Like, aside from, like, you know, there's rock slides and shit like that. We're talking Everest people, I'm just going to come out and say it. But... Just like the title said. Just like the title said. (laughs) Again, this should not be shocking. Um, It's just crazy, like... Okay, so it's the tallest spot on earth from sea level up it is what do they call it earth's roof some shit like that i'm not sure i think it's earth's roof because you can't get any higher and still be on earth oh that would be true oh technically yes so are you wait are you saying the people that are flying on on the aren't aren't eh, aren't on earth no no it's it's not land travel it's not in the stars so so. you're just floating yeah and hovering it's magic Okay, well, speaking of traveling, to kind of put it into perspective, 29,000... We've got to hit a cut point so we can start. I know we do. Listen, <laughs> I'm, not, can't be throwing numbers I'm not already out. getting ahead of steam. I'm just warming these people up. You can't okay. just, listen, you can't just have educational intercourse with these lovely people that are listening right now oh, we're just and, just, and just jam a giant mountain in them. you got to warm it up. Yeah, we're going to cut this up. I don't have to cut shit. You know what? You've thrown me off my groove. Cut to the cut to the theme.
I've had a chance to listen to our lovely theme song and cool myself down. We're, we're now in the episode. Are you happy? Yeah, this is it's sort of a tense week in the studio. Uh, not it was to... three minutes, folks. He thought it was seven. <laughs> I think not... someone someone partook heavily <laughs> before the episode. I can't argue that. Uh, we had a little snafu um, in planning this week. Professor Ag doesn't read text messages super well. I so... might not have phrased it. Very well. I'll take full blame for this, but uh, I think it's going to be a great one for the people. Chris did some studying on a topic. I did some studying on what I thought was this week's topic. Um, so we're getting learning episodes. Um, I did a little bit of looking into Everest, but Chris is going to handle the bulk of it. Because That's fine. I like to it, talk. I, I feel like I talk it. the most anyway. Yeah. I And I have just questions to pummel you with anyway, so you probably weren't even going to get to your information because a lot of this is just going to be me saying, stating a fact and then just sitting here slack John being like, isn't that amazing? You're going to be like, uh, blowing your fucking mind. So getting down into nitty gritty. So you were mentioning, you know, air travel and your theory that essentially that doesn't mean someone exists on Earth once they're in the air. So Everest being the highest point on Earth, 29,031 feet, eight and a half inches. We've got it down to, to that I don't know how. I'm assuming it's lasers. You know, a man measured that. Yeah. A woman just would have left it at a round number. A man's like, oh, there's eight more inches on there. We're mm-hmm. not getting credit for And it. a half. Let's not shortchange <laughs> this baby. So the cruising altitude of like modern airlines is somewhere between like 34 and 36,000 feet. So this is literally sitting five, you know, four or 5,000 feet below that. The, uh, I did see that at the time of uh the first ascent mm-hmm. the first finished all the way up to the top ascent yeah. on everest uh passenger planes commercial planes couldn't even fly that high yet really yeah so it, oh okay so are you saying when everest because we're going to discuss kind of the history and yeah. how it was it's a mountain but it had to be discovered uh-huh. essentially by the people yeah. that wanted that gave a fuck about climbing it are you saying that at that point the planes couldn't because that's definite Definitely, I don't even think there were planes around then, but are you saying when they summited the first time, yeah, planes couldn't even get over it? During the first summit. That makes sense. Yeah. That was like that, in the 50s, so. It just, uh, that blew my mind just to think that we actually, like, we couldn't get anything up and over the top of like Everest. Like, he, so he was just in an elite <laughs> club being at that altitude. Yeah. Like, people that flew were like, I've flown that. He's like, I've actually stood uh, higher than you've gone. Oh, that's cool. You guys were in planes. I was still higher than you, standing on yeah. the ground. So Mount um, Mount Everest, it's on the mountain range that separates essentially China or Tibet. I'm going to refer to a lot of this as Tibet because when they're talking about the history of it, Tibet was still... We're going to have to figure out what the free Tibet thing was. I was too young when that happened, uh, but I still have references to it. I believe... It was China's takeover of a country. China right? took over Tibet and booted the Dalai Lama. So I'm just still going to refer to it as Tibet. Free okay. Tibet. Yeah. I'm, I'm pro-Tibet. We're right there. So it was basically on the border of Tibet and Nepal, and it's in the mountain mountain range. I'm going to go and butcher this, but it's the Mahalangar Himal subrange of the Himalayas. I think you nailed that. So in the Himalayas, just to kind of give this context, because this is what, like, I'm a visual person. We have a map that we're looking at right now of it. Everest itself, okay, think of it in this sense. The height of Everest, have you seen uh, Mount Rainier, right? Mm, yes and, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. you've seen it just yep. looking at it mount rainier it's two mount rainiers is everest 
Mount Rainier is 14,000 feet above sea level. Rainier's the one in Washington? Yes. And then Mount Hood's the one in Oregon? I believe so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's yeah, t- Rainier beer. It's okay. two of those. It's insane. It's two 14,000 foot peaks. I'd imagine, just to put it in context, Mount Everest is sort of probably like what the Twin Towers look like in the New York skyline when they still existed. Compared to the other, okay, yeah. so like that section or the Himalayas contain 30 of the world's tallest mountains, peaks. K2, all that shit. Yes. Now, even the peaks around Mount Everest, so Mount Everest is essentially the peak that goes up, and I think it's like a three-ridged peak. Mountains right next to it are literally like the fourth tallest, and then one of them is like the sixth tallest. So when you're looking at Everest, you're like, I mean, I guess that's the tallest out of all of those. But it's literally the highest peak from sea level on Earth. It just it's it's a weird thing where you have to adjust your thinking when you're looking at a picture of it because it doesn't look tall in comparison to everything mm-hmm. else. But then when you actually understand and you start to get scale of how far back these pictures are from the mountain, you're like, oh shit, these people are standing like 25 miles from this mountain right now. Backdrop, it's yes. A backdrop issue. It's like your wiener not looking as big because you got a bigger backdrop behind it. That's true. It's, it's tough to do it that way, but that's really, I, just to think about how there's like a mountain range, and then it's almost like a belt buckle, you would say, and then there's like Everest right in the middle of the belt buckle, kind of. Yeah, so kind of, and me and you had this discussion, I can't remember, you brought, oh, we were talking about like if the world was condensed down to like a bowling ball, could yeah. you feel Everest? Uh-huh. And you're like, of course you would feel Everest, and I don't think you would because it's not because Everest isn't really tall, it's because the ground leading up to it is just climbing in elevation. That's why when you look at Everest from base camp, yeah, it seems super tall. But at the time you're at base camp, the main one, you're already at like, I want to say the base camp that most people start out with. And there's two ways to get up Everest. I know I'm going to go kind of all over the place on this. There's two ways to get up Everest. One was from the side in Tibet. The other was from the side in Nepal. And the one that is what was what's considered like the standard route, that one is I think comes in from the um, Tibetan side, because initially when Mount Say or Mount Everest, I almost said Mount St. Helens, Mount Everest was discovered by people outside of that area, and they were like, "Oh shit, we should fucking climb that." And the people, the locals, are like, "Why? Because it's a mountain. Why wouldn't you? Who was that? Mallory that said that." Uh, yeah. He's like, why would you want to climb that? He's like, because it's there. There's, there's a very tricky thing about this because what was the first guy's name that didn't make it? It wasn't Mallory, but it sounds like. No, it was George Mallory. You're thinking because it's Edmund Hillary. Oh, that's what it is. It's the Mallory and Hillary thing. Hillary, I think was the one that said that because Mallory didn't do a interview after he tried to. Exactly. (laughs) No, no, no. no, It was, he said it because he, Okay. Let's just go ahead and get back to the actual right. stats on the mountain and then kind of the story behind it. So it exists essentially in that area between China and Tibet, or China and, sorry, Tibet, Nepal. And it was first actually the reason it's named Mount Everest. The real name, it has a Tibetan name. I don't want to butcher it, but the translation is Holy Mother, which makes a lot of sense. It would be something that would be revered being essentially the highest mountain or deity in, in the area. That makes a lot of sense. Well, and initially, too... Wasn't it that they didn't think it was the tallest in the range? Well, yeah, because like it's that's what I'm talking about. It's the comparison thing. 
if you're already, you know, standing around base camp and you're looking up and it's only, you know, it's 29,000 feet, but from base camp, it's only like 13,000 feet because you're up so high already. You're like, well, this, you know, like we can tell this is a 13,000 foot from here. You had to then determine what you were above sea level. Mm -hmm. So to do that probably took more work. But yeah, initially it was called like peak 15. So apparently there were other peaks being looked at for being taller. Eventually it was determined. And this guy named Sir George Everest in 1841 was kind of the first one to document it. Of course, it's a British guy. Yeah, I don't like that. Well, it's always going to be a British guy or a Spanish guy when we're talking about discovery of this shit because they fucking put their dicks everywhere. Well, and they're the ones that wrote the history. We don't have a Nepalese history or a Tibetan history of the finding of Everest. Because, yeah, because the Holy Mother existed there yep. at, at all times. So Sir George Everest is kind of the first one to report back to the crown or whatever that this mountain exists. The mountain ends up being named Mount Everest after him. So the first attempts to climb it by essentially, I'm sure people climbed it to a degree, but here's the thing. You have to be at a certain point in your society or your civilization where you're now just doing a hard, dumb shit for fun and for the sport of it. There, yeah, it's almost like there has to be a level of pressure taken off everyone. Uh, just survivability. Yeah. Here's the thing. So, like, I, it was during the first or second expedition that the British did, and they were talking about the, like, Sherpa people. And... I don't mean Sherpa peoples and like the people that are Sherpa. <laughs> Did that sound really like? We got to slow down one of those okay. words. It sounds like you're running them together. No, sorry. The, the Sherpa people. <laughs> so the Sherpa are actually not like the job of people. I think that's a misunderstanding. When you say they're Sherpas, mm -hmm. they think that they're the people that like, that's the name for like guides there. It's, it's the name of a people from the region are the Sherpa people. I, and it's not only just the Sherpa people that are used. There are other sort of, There's not really Tibetan villages, but different. Nepalese people and different people, tribes and stuff yeah. from the area that they use for porters to, to bring stuff up to the mountain, you know, to base camps and stuff. They just all call those guys Sherpas too. I I've saw that there was a lot of differentiation between Sherpa and porter. I think the porters kind of just are more in charge of like the yak trains. Yes, this is a thing. Yak trains. Well, and that, and then the Sherpas are actually the people that help go with them up the mountain. The porters don't do that. Sherpas mean they're also climbers. They're the guys that are, porters are the ones that are in charge of like getting the shit into camp, getting yes. the shit out of camp yes. and that type of stuff. Sherpas are more like straight up. Porters they're, are just like A to B. Yep. And they're also the guys that will go ahead of the climbers. This is what's so crazy. And that the Sherpa people and the people that climb this, as far as, you know, not the like, guys from Britain and tourists and stuff like that, which I'm not, it, there's going to be some conflicting feelings in regards to like the commercialization and tourism aspect of Everest. But God damn right. But the people that are up there is the Sherpas that are staying up there and like repeatedly guiding and everything. Those people are literally the, the they're superheroes as far as this stuff goes. They're able to live in and survive in a place like this so much so that they just do this as an industry and a job. Hiking Everest and taking people up there is a job for people. Whereas that's a life experience for a very few in relation to how much the population is on Earth. You know, Sherpas are just there all the time. I mean, they're not constantly going up there, come back, and then just go right back up the mountain. But during a season, Sherpas will make multiple attempts 
to guide people up the mountain and true accompany, you know, expeditions up the mountain. Well, and even at the same time, it's a lot like the Inca episode that we did where the people just lived in the Andes. Mm-hmm. So their shit was ready to go at any point in time to go up to uh, Machu Picchu. Yeah. And when you just have that ability and it's bred into you. When you said ability as far as the coca leaves. Well, well I'm sure they. <laughs> the coca leaves are their oxygen. That's yeah. the. Okay. Yeah. I, I could go with that. We did, the Inca didn't have oxygen tanks and mm-hmm. they were just chewing on coca leaves. But uh, their bodies are just built different. Their lungs take in oxygen different. Built different. Yeah. Uh, they're, but that's the thing is like that's just evolution at work, making sure that these people can survive in there. <laughs> so, so getting back to that point, I strayed away from that the guy came out during one of the first expeditions and they're like, well, why hasn't, because none of these people that lived around this area in, you know, Tibet, Nepal, no one was like, yeah, no one's ever climbed to the top of this that we know of. And so they got this misunderstanding, like these people don't have it in them to get up to the top of the mountain. No, because one of the first people that got up to this motherfucking mountain was a Sherpa. What it was is there was no reason for them to do that. Like, to risk life was already probably pretty fucking like risky living Mm -hmm. in the area that they did. They didn't need to add additional danger for no gain. That's not going to get them more food. If a Sherpa was the first person to make it up there and there wasn't a documented case of it, then it probably would have been passed off if it not happened. And that person would not have been famous. They'd been like, well, you know, old Jeff in the village actually got up to the top and they're like, Oh, well it must be easy then or some shit. I, I think that it's a lot like you were saying where they just, they didn't need to. They they had probably pushed it they up They had other ways. shit they had to worry about. Yeah, that, like staying alive. They didn't they, have someone being like, hey, we'll pay you to go hike this mountain. Mm-hmm. No one was offering them that opportunity. They already understood that at a certain altitude, shit just didn't grow. Fucking white people, fucking rich white people. Well, and the other thing too is there probably wasn't anybody in a Nepalese or Tibetan village that looked like Winston Churchill. Like there, there was no portly Tibetan people at that time no. because everybody was trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sure when the British people rolled in, they're like, weird, all these guys seem to be in shape. What? Uh, that couldn't be a big deal. Why, we're so fucking out of breath and they're just strolling along. Yeah. So in the first attempts to climb um, by the British were in 1921. And they were able to essentially reach, I'm going to use some terms that are going to sound weird, like I'm going to talk about base camps. There's a base camp called the North Coal. And the North Coal, the main route that most people take to the top is different from the initial route that like the first couple people try because they're trying from a different area, a different location. So the North Coal basically is at 22,970 feet. And it's hard to describe unless you're looking at a map of it, but it's not like base camp. And then you just walk from base camp and you're at the foot of Everest and you start just hiking up that way. The reason that this was so crazy to have and so much effort had to be put into it is the mountain itself from like where you have to camp to start hiking is literally like 12, it's 12 miles to the summit in the route that you have to go. Twelve miles, and in that twelve miles, you're going an elevation difference, yeah, like of thirteen thousand feet. After you've tried to then even acclimate yourself to the base camp where you're at, which is you know at thirteen or fourteen thousand feet, or sorry, base camp is at seventeen thousand feet. I think that also 
goes to the point of just the uniqueness of this sort of mountain range is it wasn't really like a meandering crawl up. Your elevation change was going to be pretty steep compared to other mountain ranges. There's different places where it is, which is so crazy because, like, it's not what you think of when you're just, like, mountaineering. Like, if you're watching, like, someone just go up a mountain, there's a whole bunch of different, like, mountaineering aspects. Like, you have to, at one point, cross this thing called the Kunu Icefall. It'll be easier once I go into the actual route and everything. The crevasses? It's the... It's nuts, man. Like, the amount of danger. Like, I learning about this, I still think that it's weird that there's this commercialization of it. But I understand when you see, like, the images. I'm sure during your research you saw the image of the line trying to get up to the top of it. Uh, yeah. It, okay. It looked like fucking Six Flags. It, it did. And here's the thing. Cold it's, Six Flags. It does. I, I looked at it the same way before really digging into this, and I was like, fuck, man, like, they're ruining it. Like, it's not special anymore because all these people... I thought it was just, like, a Disneyland ride assembly line. Like, going up, and they're touching it, and then coming back down. Those people have all been waiting for the three-day window out of that time to try to make their attempt. And it's not like those people have been sitting at base camp just waiting for the weather to clear, and then they head up. Like, I hope after this... I'm not saying it's, you know, we're all these tourists coming to this country and like technically if they hold this mountain it's like a holy deity, there's conflicting feelings on it. But by the end of this, like I hope to at least maybe kind of like got people thinking about what that actually looks like. It's not it's not bad like that image of people waiting in like gridlock at the top makes it sound like I have a respect for those people because I know how much those people are putting into this to even get into that line and how dangerous it is to be in that line, and what you would have to tell yourself in order to get out of that line and turn back. You might never get a chance to make it up there. Getting, getting back to where, in 1920, or 1921, they basically get up to this thing called the North Coal. And the North Coal, like I was saying, being at 22,000 feet, they still have roughly 7,000 vertical feet to go. That's just the height difference. That's not to say how far it was. It was still days of of hiking to the summit where because you can only hike for a few hours a day just because of the elevation change and how brutal it is. So it's not like you're going on a 10-hour hike and you go from base camp to the summit all in one go. No. And so they got to this place called the North Coal, and these guys are wearing, like, wool trousers and, like, um, wooden healed boots and everything. I mean, as much mountaineering as they could and like stuff they could move around in, but like these guys don't have fucking North face shit on Gore-Tex is not even, no, uh, they don't even invent that until like literally the third expedition about like a windproof waterproof fabric. That's like a canvas. But these guys are also in like cloth tents, like setting up here, having to bring wood to burn a fire. There's no jet boil and stuff like that. Like, and and these guys on this expedition aren't all, like, British guys just doing it by themselves. They've hired a ton of porters and a ton of, like, um, people like Sherpas and things like that to assist them. So, again, from the very get-go, all of this stuff about, like, discovery in the first attempts, if I don't mention it, always assume that if there's any of these English dudes, there's, like, a Sherpa with them. And about ten Sherpas behind them making this shit happen. If there's any white people on the mountain, there are many, many Sherpas and Tibetans and Nepalese. M- many people, people of, of varying there. darker shades. Yes. On yeah. on the mountain yep. with them. So that's the furthest they reach during that twenty expedition. Now, at this point too, they have no freaking clue about any of the weather. 
in this area when they can actually hike this thing. The times that this can actually be summited, there's two times a year, and you have to wait for windows in the weather during like those two months of the year. So it's not even to say that during that it's a 30-day cycle where it's like, all go up there. The weather still has to permit. These are just the times in which the jet stream, it's up so high, it's in the jet stream. And, and the that, winds at the top that can yeah. come over are 200 miles an hour. That It'll just, it could throw away. Someone, it could sweep, it just, you would never be found. It could carry you right off the mountain. Uh, but just to think like they're almost literally above the weather because they're in the jet stream. Mm-hmm. Like that's, how can you be above the weather yeah. on, on land? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's these certain points. So, and they didn't know about that. So while they're doing this expedition, they're not just trying to hike Everest. They're also doing like geological survey of all the other areas around it, finding other mountains, trying to measure them and all that kind of crap. They have specialized teams that are like trying to get up to the top because every country of course wants to be the first one to say that they put their flag on the top of it. And any other country that comes after them is going to have to see that. It was a space race on land. Exactly. It was as close to the space race as they could technologically (laughs) get at this point, man. Closest to the moon. So they come back in 1922 and they find basically another route along the North Ridge. And so the North Ridge is, I want to say like they get up to 27,300 feet. They're the first people above, and I know I'm referring to feet. We have a lot of international listeners. What's up, guys? Um, I heard a lot of references to meters. I'm sorry, I don't know the conversion to meters and everything like that. So I'm just Come saying on. feet. But I did write meters here just this one time. So the first, they were the first guys above one th- or sorry, eight thousand meters, which is twenty six thousand two hundred thousand or twenty six thousand two hundred plus or minus feet. First guys above that. Well, and what is the uh, death zone? So the death zone starts at, let's see, I want to say like above 20, you know what, it might actually be 26,000. Well, and that's, it's called the death zone because your blood literally, there's not enough oxygen in the air to oxygenate your blood. So the death zone is not just like a funny kooky name like Puss Out Ridge or anything like that. The death zone is where just literal death happens if you don't have a substitute for the oxygen that isn't in the air. So it's 26,247 feet. Jesus Christ. So they made it right to about there. So here's the thing. They probably have no clue at this point that there's even, you know, in 1922, they have no idea that there's a point in which the oxygen is going to be way different. Yeah, that it just stops, I mean, (laughs) it might have been... You know, when you're hiking, because a lot of these guys, it's not like they were just British guys that happened to have been on like Rump Spring or a fucking uh-huh. bachelor party. These guys, when they identified this mountain, were sent on an expedition by the British government and benefactors to be like, climb this thing. We want Britain to have, you know, that to say. So when they get here, they don't know, you know, they've practiced or they've been known mountaineers that have gone and hiked the Swiss Alps mm-hmm. and have gone and hiked these other peaks. I don't know how many of those other peaks got to the point where in the death zone, I think it's a, you're at a third of the oxygen that you normally operate at. It's a third of the oxygen in the air. So once they got to that point where they were on that second one and they were, you know, set up camp or kind of sat there for a little bit, can you imagine that feeling when you started to breathe and you're just like, what is going on? 
like I'm like you would notice that you're having trouble breathing and not getting enough air. At that point, you would just you know if you're with another British guy, you look at each other, you're like, okay, this is fucking unexpected. Like, what is this? It is, but at the same time, the way that it really just came to me is it's such a tricky thing because you've already been on such a long, arduous hike for so long. That's what I'm saying. Your you body's going to be wearing tired. down eventually. So you don't really understand that it's not just the wear and tear from getting to where you are. That's it's exactly just that what I'm saying. Yeah, there's no oxygen. You're like, um, I'm usually not this gas. Well, we have been hiking for the last like, yeah. th- fucking three days. But not only is it that, there's just nothing there to, mm-hmm. to oxygenate your blood. So they end up, that's as far as they make it, is up to that 26,200. So, I mean, they're right at the death zone. I don't think they really know if they can get up any further. And at that point, those guys aren't going to, they're like, hey, we'll just come back next year. We're going to keep getting funding for this. So there was um, no expedition in 1923, I think because of World War One. Oh, no, because that one, Over. that ended, yeah, that was already ended, even before they did the first expedition. I don't know why there wasn't one in 23. But in 24, this is the big one where there's a weird, did they, didn't they, summit attempt. And this is where two guys, George Mallory and Andrew Irvine, come in. And George Mallory, I think, had been on the previous two expeditions back in 22 and 21. And he had been partnered up with a couple different guys and then some Sherpas. And I'm not sure if he was the one to reach the 26,200 feet. But when they came back this time, they brought oxygen with them. I should have looked into this more, but in 1924, I mean, how are like, you're having to weld and create airtight bottles, valves, gauges, all that stuff, and then be able to put in more pure oxygen. Like, is the... Does that technology exist? Yeah. The issue, though, is I don't think they had, like, aluminum yet. So you're talking about steel, basically, like, steel oxygen cylinders Mm -hmm. that weigh ten times as much as an aluminum cylinder that is then filled with... They had liquid oxygen back then. Okay. So, but you, you would have to be able to carry something that fucking heavy that far up the hill when before they're like, well... We just got tired before. You guys don't really need this oxygen mm-hmm. stuff. And there was this weird shame, like stigma in the community of mountaineering, be like, oh, you need oxygen. <laughs> because people would could use it once it became available. There was, you know, no getting around the benefits. Like they even said during those first expeditions, you could double your climbing speed by being on oxygen just because your body was able to work that much more effectively. This shit was Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France. And so it's not to say that it just Everest was the first time it was used. Other climbers were using it, oh, and yeah. that's why there was this stigma of like, well, people have gotten to this peak without oxygen, but now you're using oxygen, so that's kind of a cheat. They found out they were going to need this on Everest, and so they had devised a way to like – they factored in and were like, well, it takes four bottles to give us enough time to try to you know get to the summit. And during one of – there were three different attempts. It was – I want to say like Mallory and a uh, another guy, not Urban, went together and they got up a little ways and had to come back. Then he sent another two guys up there and then Mallory wanted one more crack at it. And he's like, but I want Andrew Irvine to go with me because apparently he had proved himself really adept at actually like manipulating the oxygen system to get like its peak performance. Yeah. He was a younger guy. He was a pretty good mountaineer and everything. But I think Mallory looked at that and he was like, I can either take a stronger climber 
or I'm a pretty strong climber. I've made it the furthest, I think, so far. I'm going to take the guy that gives me my best shot at being able to use the oxygen system. And that guy had also, like, tinkered with it and made it lighter and stuff. So, Or, here's a third option. He chose the one guy that he knew for sure when shit hit the fan up there that he could kill and take his oxygen. <laughs> Do you think that's what it was? I don't know if that was m- m- much of the thought at that point. I, if it's a life or death situation, I mean... Uh, it's like being trapped below water with one respirator between two people. Like, Here's the you thing, might dude. have to make a choice. Correct, but I I think what gets kind of underestimated on this, and when we start talking about the people that have died on the mountain, not enough. No, I don't. I don't think. Yeah, I was shocked the number was so low. But what the thing is, the reason there's so many bodies still on the mountain isn't like a weird like, well, we're not going to disturb them type thing. No one has the strength when they're doing that to get the bodies off the mountain because it's a 200 pound frozen, awkward popsicle that you have to drag down. And that's 200 pounds. Like you're so exhausted from the four days you've previously had to hike to make a summit attempt from base camp that trying to use any of that energy is literally putting yourself in a situation tonight. You're on oxygen already up there to even try no one's going to take the time to send groups up there to remove the bodies. They've brought down a few, but like they're still, man, out of the people that have died there, I think, what is it? As of November 22nd, 300 people have died trying to summit. That's, but that's Just also sounds- to say that like people have also been rescued. Mm-hmm. People have also not made it up high enough to get in that position. People have like gotten to like more critical positions lower on the mountain to where they were able to out. So 300 people have died. 200 plus bodies still remain on that mountain. The other thing that I guess that I just learned through this and didn't really think of before is I guess dead bodies at that height just really freeze to the ground quick once you fall. Yeah. Like if you just stop moving, apparently you just freeze to the ground. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Mallory a little bit and then I watched a documentary that was weirdly just really unsettling about how casual they were around a dead body. Oh, oh green boots. No, no, no. This is different than that. So kind of getting back to Mallory and Irvin. So they are, you know, leaving base camp and I'll go through the stages of how to get there after, after we get more into the modern, um, a sense of Everest. So it takes them, you know, they have people, they're not just going from their base camp. They have, I think three camps set up. So you'll go from your base camp, you'll hike up to another camp and usually you'll stay the night there. Acclimate a little bit. You have to rest. You're hiking probably four to five hours through elevation during this entire time. Then camp two or camp one to camp two doing the same thing. You're going to stay there. Now keep in mind that there's multiple trips that have been being made up to these other camps by porters and Sherpas to bring stuff up. Because when you leave base camp, you're not taking all of the oxygen with you to get all the way up to you're basically like all that stuff is there to make the climb even easier that these Sherpas have stocked up and set up. You're not getting up there and camp's not already set up. You're getting up to these camps and the tents are already there. Your just priority is to basically try to rest. How fast would you be fired as a porter if you just got tired on the way up there carrying the oxygen tanks and you just started ripping one and by the time they got up there they didn't have enough oxygen man when i saw the pass that they have to go through this and know that these like porters or the sherpas have to go and like prep these things it's sheer insanity because it's not like well i'll get to in just a second it that's kind of a, a long thing i want to talk about 
So they, you know, stay the night, get up to, I think, Camp 3, stay the night there again. And then this is in June. So I think June 8 is when they, 1924, June 8th, this is when they actually get up to like Camp 3 or Camp 4. I can't remember how many camps they had on that side of the mountain. But they're going to make their summit attempt on June 8th. So for actual, like, summiting, like I said, the two times a year that they really recommend doing this, June is not one of them. There's the winter. There's also monsoon season. And you're like, well, what's monsoon? Well, it can get warm. Snow can get shifty. Avalanches. Like, this thing is fucking, it's just, it should be just called Murder Mountain. But it's not. Somehow there's only 300 people that have died. I know, but that's because I think there's so many people that have developed routes and paths, and there you have these Sherpas that are laying lines and setting up ladders and shit. When I when we I keep getting away from the routes. Yeah. Sorry. So apparently they were last spotted, and I'm trying to figure this out in my head with technology back in 24, binoculars, telescopes, things like that. A filmmaker was with them and said they were last spotted 800 vertical feet from the summit. So that's not to say that like they were standing on the ground, they looked straight up and they're like, the summit's 800 feet above us. It's basically like you're on the ridge and 800 feet up and out in front of you, you're still having to hike this ridge up to the summit. And at this point, you're also in the death zone. Oxygen is scarce. You have oxygen, but it's not like the stuff they have today. So... There were these three, I think, steps that they had to go through to get. And when I say steps, I don't mean like instruction steps. Mm-hmm. There were th- there's three steps on the ridge trying to get up. And you're like, well, why don't you just go around the steps? When you're on like an – it's like a ridge that is up at a point. It's There's very little wiggle room going right or left. And so they have to get up this like one ridge that I think is like a kind of a gravel – like sloped area where it's like very like loose rock mm-hmm. that you could slip and any fall here resulting in a sprain, a break sliding down. You're dead. Yeah. There's no one that can rescue you at this point. No one has the strength or energy to do so. So they saw them below the first step, I want to say. Um, and that was the last anyone ever saw of them. So there's always been Until this then, for then. Yeah. Up until, up until 1999, Unfortunately, this isn't like, they found him living in a cave on the mountain in 99. No, it's not like that. So during a previous expedition, before 99, whoever had went up there next or a few expeditions later, they found an ice axe that was stuck in like one of the steps. The, the step, when I say that, it think of like a step, but the, it's a, a vertical face. You have to climb, and then it's like a little flatter area than the next one. It's like 15-foot tall steps. The The second one was like 15 feet tall, but it was sheer straight up, whereas yeah, the first one was longer. That's how steps go. Correct, but what I'm saying is like, I mean like also a step like it's a, it goes up steeper and then flattens out. They just called them the three steps. The second one is, I think, the second 15-foot face is where they found the axe, and it turns out it was Irving's axe. They were able to like somehow, through pictures and other it. people, to talk, yeah. And... So there was finally, they kind of had an idea where something may have happened. And so in 99, I think there was an expedition to go and find or look for Mallory's body. So basically, these guys are going up all of this just to try to find this guy's body. I think they summited at the same time as well. But in 99, they find a body and it has the clothes have kind of been weathered and rotted away a little bit. But a lot of the stuff was still existing. And they found... um, 
uh, like a label on the inside that said George Mallory. That I would imagine at that elevation, the wind is probably going to fuck with things, but the cold is going to preserve things very well. It was so crazy to see. It looked fake, but at the same time, I knew it was real. The body was oh, like... Oh, you actually saw this guy? Yes. Really? So okay. he was laying face down. He had a broken rope tied around and cinched around his waist. It had squeezed so tight <laughs> that you could still see the imprint in the body. It had like either snapped or had been cut, and he was laying face down. So basically... The mountain is so big when you look at it. It's weird to think about, but like it's so enormous and you're so far back from it. It just looks like there's just steep sides all the way down. But what you can't see are the slopes come down, but some areas flatten out where like rocks will catch like a little flat, Mm -hmm. but barely. But I mean, it's all completely like not you're not going to go camping down there. It can just catch snow when it comes down there. He had somehow fallen and slid down that. And was face first buried partially in rocks like this, like face down, arms up, kind of like, hey, put your hands up. Mm -hmm. His body was weirdly preserved where his skin almost looked like it was just kind of frosted over. And he had just shrunk a little bit from the loss of muscle. But there was like no rot until they went down by his legs where he'd broken his legs and they were breaks that came out of the skin. So what do you call those? Uh, compound Com- fracture compound fracture where it comes out of the, on one of his legs and so he had basically fallen broken his leg he was sliding down they said he had a head wound as well that matched his axe so they say they thought he went to go dig his axe in to catch himself and it hit something and rebounded off and hit him in the head <laughs> but it was so fucking weird that there's just this like and the back was like kind of like bare where the wind had whipped the clothes off of it it was just fucking eerie man but, like, that's just, there's these bodies all over. Like, you're saying the green boots. There's a guy in a red jacket or a faded red jacket in green boots that's just off the tr- off the path under this little alcove where he, this man literally just crawled and died. Well, they said before the trail actually led to where you had to walk, like, over the top of him. Well, he was under a little bit of a rock. I think it goes off to the side now a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, he was, like, sticking out from under the rock. And his you can see his boots. And they, yep, and they out. Dude, he's not even covered because the ledge. Oh, keeps I thought him. he was covered. No, maybe it's just when they it just, really snows. The only body, picture that I saw, you could just see the boots and a mouth. You could see the jack jacket and the boots and everything. And you can just—I mean—he's a marker now on the trail. They're like, "Did you get past green boots?" So like, they'll spot like depending on the thaws that happen every year and shifting everything, they'll they'll find bodies at certain points, but it, no one can get them out of there. Well, the big question that I'm sure everybody has is. Did Mallory fall going up or did he fall coming back down? So they didn't find his, like, he had a little Kodak, like, personal pocket camera that he took. They didn't find it on him. And so they're like, well, it's got to be with Irving. Irving was, like, his assistant going up. He would have been the one taking pictures of Mallory. And so they went on another expedition up there to try to find him. They thought they had sent, they had gone up to, like, the way that they were hiking up. They'd gotten up to, like, um, the North Coal and then sent a drone and the guy controlled it and was like looking all where they found Mallory. Mm-hmm. Cause they were thinking, well, the rope was obviously they were tied to each other. Yeah. So he'd either the rope snapped or the other guy was getting pulled down and cut it. And so they were looking in all these rock alcoves, but they couldn't get close enough. So once they hiked up there, they all summited. And on the way down, like one or two of the guys went down and looked for him to see if he had the camera and they couldn't find his body. So they're yeah. thinking if he fell, it was just luck that Mallory had slid down and stopped and got partially buried. 
had he fallen anywhere else, he would have gone right down. And the guy's like, he probably fell 7,000 feet down the mountain and he'll never be, never be discovered. The other just wildly dumb thing that kind of spurs that did they or didn't they make it is, I guess Mallory had taken a picture of his wife mm-hmm. to take up and leave at the summit. Yeah. And they searched his body when they brought him back down. There's no picture of his wife. So logically you would think, hey, maybe they got to the summit and put it up there. Yeah. Or he knew that he was going to freeze to death and die. And so the last thing that he wanted to see was his wife. And then the picture flooded away. Yes. I'm kind of thinking that's what it might be. He's laying there. His legs are broken. Yeah. That's sort of what it feels like. It's just saying, well, he didn't have the picture. And the other thing, too, is the way that they kind of looked at it they wouldn't have had time to summit based upon the time of day that they left. Or the oxygen, probably. The oxygen. There were a lot of signs that they didn't didn't make it to the top. That's sort of the other thing, too, is when you're calculating oxygen, you're not just calculating oxygen to make it there. You're calculating oxygen to your halfway point, needing to be the point to where you're up there, because you still have to make it all the way back down. They say the most dangerous part is actually, and even though it's less than half the time, or it's half the time, so it takes you double the time going up as it does coming down. They say the most dangerous is coming down because you're already, your momentum is already bringing you down at a downward angle. You're completely gassed from the top. They say the average time people spend up at the top is like 15 minutes, enough to get some pictures, take a breather. But because, like I was saying, it sounds like there's a traffic jam. Imagine out of you know, there's billions of people on the planet Earth. You basically have people wanting to attempt this. And when you have two months out of the year, and then there's a few, maybe a few days or maybe a week or so during that month when people can summit, they've invested so much time and training and effort into it. That's why it seems like, and it's also because there's only one line of way to get up there. Mm-hmm. One from one side, one from the other, which I think is kind of cool because like people will be hiking up on the summit one side and like coming up and you're like, oh shit, like there is another path. I, I had no idea. No but, clue. So like they usually spend 15 minutes and then head back, but you're so tired that, you know, you have to, again, like you're saying, have enough oxygen to get back. But that's when like you're trying to be the most careful, but you're also just the most exhausted. Yeah, it's like any thought of walking down an incline after a long hike. When your quads are so fired up and filled with lactic acid from climbing it. You're coming down on each step and (laughs) catching yourself and everything. If one of those muscles gives out and your leg gives out, it's not like, okay, I fell. It's like, okay, you're kind of dead. Yeah. So, well, that guy definitely did. Yeah. So, no, I don't think Mallory made it to the top. But do you know who did make it to the top? A guy that sounds like Mallory. Well, he did, but I think we, Tenzin. Oh, Tenzing. yeah. Definitely, you know, the the huge contributing factor there. Maybe that's also why Mallory didn't make it up there. He took another Englishman with him. Bad choice. So, May 29th, 1953. Um, there was some stuff that went down after World War II where uh, climbing Mount Everest really wasn't a priority and everything like that. Oh, we're not going to talk about this? We're not going to talk about the dancing llamas? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So... I focused is I focused on the mountain. You okay. tell me about the llamas. So on this first Mallory trip, one of the things that they had done was they were trying to figure out how to. Oh, that's right. They were trying to fucking bring some of the culture yeah. back to yeah. to the fucking people in England. Yeah. So the they like Chris said they brought a filmmaker up there to kind of try to film through some things. But uh, as part of the stage show, like Chris said, they wanted to bring the culture with it too. So they actually kind of not like, real llamas, s- folks. Yeah. Yeah. This is. This whole thing was uh, an issue called the dancing llamas. I, going into it, 
thought just through my white mind, like, hey, these have to be like llamas that they found up there that knew how to dance, right? I no. may, have, may have thought something similar. Uh, it was just they had abducted these monks, these llamas that were up there, and had brought them back As in to Dalai England. llamas. Yeah. Like, well, Dalai, I think, is numero uno. It, it is, but, but I meant like... like the llamas of the Dolly variety. Yes. Like yeah, people are yep. within that order. People. Yeah. So they brought them back to England and basically did like this touring stage show where they would have like these weird mock rituals that these llamas would be doing. And apparently it really pissed the Tibetan people off. And the Tibetan people actually forbade the English from coming back into the country for 10 years. That's right. To stop That's them from... Was. Excuse me, just basically bastardizing mm-hmm. their culture like yeah. they did. People did try to sneak in at that point, too. The big thing I can't stress enough is you have to have such a huge support system, especially at that time, to even attempt to climb this mountain. It's not like you're sneaking like 10 guys in, you're like, come on, come on, come on. Like, you got to sneak like hundreds of guys in. To, and you also need all of the help of the people from the region, so you yeah. ain't sneaking in. So, May 29, 1953, another British expedition. And this guy, Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, New Zealander. He's a Kiwi. Very odd. Kiwi. So he was essentially like a well-known New Zealand climber from a young age. Um, he got invited because there were two open spots on this English um, expedition to go to the Himalayas. He got one of the spots. Really strong climber. And there was a guy along that was one of the Sherpas. His name was Tenzig Norgay. And Tenzig had actually reached prior to this he had experience on everest he had uh, actually gone up i believe it was the year yep, or two before with the swedes be- yep with the swiss and he actually got up to twenty eight thousand one hundred ninety nine feet the year before so if anything he was like fuck i'm almost right there yeah. he, he saw the summit i believe you can see the summit from like the fourth camp it's just you're looking up the ridge and it's still i thought it like disappears into clouds though sometimes sometimes but at the time you're cl- there shouldn't be clouds because that's when the jet stream's coming over again they've tried to like and at this time this probably allowed them to get like more of the weather down of the time that you could actually hike this thing or or hike isn't even the right word for it i don't know what to describe because you're having to do yeah climb but uh survive yeah survive i think is numero uno but uh i think the layoff is it's weird to say, and it's tough to find the words, but I think World War II is sort of a reason why they were successful in climbing in the 50s. <laughs> okay, explain. Um, World War II was the first time that we ever saw freeze-dried meals. So, like, MREs and shit like that, mm-hmm. we were giving them out there. So they were able to cut down on the heaviness of the materials that they were taking up. Because before, it was just, like, tins of food. And that food is meant to be, I think, isn't it, like, calorie-dense? Yeah. Order to like, yeah. Yep. So they're freeze-drying stuff that's able to do that. Second thing that's very important, every other time before the World War II that they had tried this, nylon wasn't a thing. They oh, invented the nylon ropes for World War II. Nylon is so much stronger than anything else. It's, it's probably lighter, too, yeah. than if they're having to do, like, cotton cord and all that kind of stuff. Also, clothing is going to be better. All yeah. that clothing that was developed, essentially, for cold weather operations, like for World War II. That's a really good point. How did I not fucking think of that? <laughs> so, yeah, huge technological advancement. And also, I'm guessing that there was a huge advancement in, like, oxygen canisters, lightweight stuff, aluminum started being made for planes. Well, like you, you said, too, at the same time... 
we understood the weather better because we were sending planes up to try to fight through storms to go bomb mm-hmm. other places. Like we understood sort of weather had patterns better, and it had had more of an understanding of patterns, yeah. better survey equipment, everything. So, yeah, fifty three. Um, there was an so Tenzing Norgay and uh, Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, get teamed up, and they do. You know, it's not just like they get put together and it's like go to the summit, boys. Like you have to do certain hikes so i mean it probably makes sense if i just kind of explain like how the climbing teams work you basically have to have climbers that like complement each other there has to be an establishment of trust because if you're just climbing as a two-man team when you're not just like near help during any of this stuff if as soon as you step out of base camp there's not a support system other than the the guy with you so you have to be able to mesh well, and Hillary and Tenzig um, ended up like meshing really, really well, and got to make an attempt themselves. Tenzig also wasn't really pumped to go with them. He really liked the Swiss. He wanted to go back with the Swiss because the Swiss treated them like equals. The Swiss would like after they made that attempt at the summit, but got like super high. Like after a successful day, the Swiss would have like their wine with them and treat them like on you know. Like people be like, hey, we're doing this together. Yeah. And they, he, as like a gift, they gave uh, Tenzig like a red scarf and he wore it even on the attempt when they actually summited. Yeah. The, the Brits had been more forceful in the past into getting into these areas for trade routes. They and still have things. that, that mastery of like the Indian area and the subcontinent yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Like, so the feelings between the British and these people, I'm sure probably weren't high altogether. It's not so much Hillary. He didn't want to, it was just, he didn't want to hike with the British. Yeah. He didn't like doing this thing, but Hey, they actually kind of developed a, a really good relationship as far as the climbing went and everything. Um, he had saved his life, not on the summit attempt, but there was like, they had been hiking up to like different stages to acclimate. And he went to go just kind of jump across to crevasse crevice. Crevo- I like I've crevasse. It. So okay, much I've heard crevasse so much yeah. that I'm saying crevasse now. It just okay. sounds so much cooler. I'm not going to call someone's butt like, "Hey, you're cre- crevasse." Bear Grylls is a survivor. When we're talking about mountains, crevasses. it's their crevasses. He just thought he could jump across it. Well, he jumped and landed on the other side, but the ice was weak on it. And as soon as he heard it crack, Tenzig positioned himself. It was just those two. And if he these crevasses can be hundreds of feet deep, you're on a glacier for a lot of this for like the first two days. You're hiking on a giant chunk of ice. So that is uh, the number one reason why I'd never do this. The first sign, that if I paid all that money, the first sign that I wasn't built to do this would be they talked about some of the things that I just um, listened to today, that it would sound like thunderstorms were happening. But it wasn't thunder. It was the ice cracking and shifting yes. and collapsing in our If itself. I knew that I was going to be walking on ice and I just hear all these other large booming cracks around me, I'm not doing that shit. I am so, I, I'm off there so fast because it could just crack right under your feet. Okay. I'm going to get past, this is the last part of history. And then I want to actually, this is the coolest part. I want to go through what it takes to get to the top because okay. that's even the craziest part. So, yep. Without much fanfare, Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary First documented ascent. They did use oxygen. Who the fuck cares? They made it to the top of this thing. I'm sure Tenzig, after getting that close before, was the stronger one on the climb. I believe he said that he allowed, um, because he was the leader in the expedition, the Mallory was like attached to the rope like 10 feet in front of him. 
And so technically Mallory got to the top first, but like by six steps. Well, the cool thing that they did was for like 20 years afterwards, um, they had agreed to not answer the question of who had crossed first, who had gotten up there first, mm-hmm. because that was the number one question was who made it up did there they really? first. Yeah. Well, that's fucking so cool. Th- they agreed with each other that they were never going to mention who did it. And it only came out in Tenzig's autobiography. He actually came out and he's like, Mallory was first. So it wasn't even like one of them wanted the credit for it. This is probably stupid, but that's kind of cool. Okay, so I could see that like if Mallory hadn't, him like pressuring Tenzin can be like, listen, like I'll pay you extra. Don't even – you don't have to say – just don't say anything. Like for him to try to get that. He's like, just let me have this. You know, I'll pay you extra. I'll make it worth it for you. But the fact that like if that's true and he did – he had no incentive to not say it was just like an honor amongst yeah. those guys, which I think is the best thing. Like it, it showed him that despite it was at least a glimmer of like that weird thing that like there was a mutual respect. And at that point he respected the guy enough to survive with him to get him up there. They probably saved his ass on yes. multiple occasions on the way up there was like, you know what? Let's both share the credit. We both did this. I would not have made it here. Like maybe yeah. that gives you, you have to gain some type of perspective. It's brotherhood doing at that something point, like this because yes. your lives are literally in each other's hands the whole time. I do think part of it and part of the reason that Tenzig finally said something about it was you just come from you couldn't have chosen two more polar opposite people. You have a British guy that's there for the fame and the glory. Mm-hmm. You have Tenzig there that's because this is a holy sight to him that he is about to be the first one out of anybody of his people that have been there. Like there's with, also probably a stigma about those people maybe helping yeah. fucking colonizers fucking hike this mountain i think though when he got back down it was like there was fanfare he got bonuses yes, from the state and everything yep and he didn't really like that because that really wasn't his life he yeah. had been on these trips and expeditions so much and been kind of told all you are is the help he didn't see himself as the hero he of the did story. after after a while i heard some stuff about his life and everything when all was said and done he had a he had some kids and everything like that he opened tenzig nord uh Tenzik Norg A expeditions. His son now runs it. Everything so like it does have somewhat, but I I got to get into the climb. Yeah. That's even even crazier. So there's two base camps, opposite sides of the mountain. So the one that we've been kind of talking about, where Tenzig and all of them went, that was or I'm sorry, like the initial um, Mallory and Irvine, those guys, that was from they were about 12.5 miles from the summit. And that's the, sorry, they were in Tibet, so that was 22 miles. That's called the Northridge uh, ascent. The most common one, when Nepal was then reopened, people were able to fly, like, and come into Kathmandu. I fucking love the name of that city, by the way. Great song, too. I'm going to Kathmandu. So that is actually the base camp there. You're 22 miles from the summit when you leave base camp. So we're going to talk about the Southeast Ridge Trail because it's or climb or ascent or whatever because that's the one that's more common commonly done. How long do you think it takes on average to to once you're there at base camp? What do you think it to summit and get back? What do you think is the time frame average? I don't know. It's tricky. I guess knowing a little bit more about it, it's not necessarily how like far you have to go. It's how you have to prepare your body to be able to go that How much far. time it takes to act. Yeah. Would you think, so 40 days. It takes 40 days from base camp to get up there? Yeah. 
I thought it was like two weeks. Nope. So this is what's crazy. So I know I you know I like these yeah. facts and all this kind of shit. So just to usually get from like the furthest point that you can travel by like actual vehicle and everything, you can either come in from this place called uh Loxa. I can't remember exactly what it's called, Laka. But you can either come in through like hiking or like ox train to carry your equipment, that kind of stuff, like porters, or I think you can fly in by helicopter. So most people that are getting to base camp just to hike the mountain aren't coming in by helicopter. Total overall, you spend 19 days traveling to and from. So I think they said that it was like eight or like nine oh. days up. So you have to literally pack yourself and you're even going up elevation at that point. So you're going from a city and you're, it takes about nine to ten days to get from that city to hike up to base camp. Okay, I thought you were talking earlier about like from where you're, everybody's ready to go and then up. I am. That's once you're there. It's 40 days once oh, you're there. Okay. That's not taking into account. So you have Jesus. ten days on that side, 40 days, another like nine, eight or nine days on the other side of it. So you're like two and a half months on this whole thing. Probably. More if you have night, that's twenty days, sixty days. But just to think about, like, yeah, two months, two and a half maybe though, just to like decompress once you get done, and then like ramp yourself up to go. I don't know if there's places to do that here. So you, this is just mentally. Yeah. Like if if you're thinking about it and you're like, okay, six days that I'm headed to climb Everest, mm-hmm. your brain's not gonna be able to focus on shit. It's else. not. It's not. So once you get to base camp. Base camp is, you know, when you look at, like, pictures of it, it's the one with all the tons and tons of tents. There's other camps that have a lot of tents, but this one is, like, there's almost looks like there's, like, permanent-type structures and everything. That's what it is. It's built for permanence because it's base camp. So 17,700 feet is where base camp is. So for the first, like, three to six weeks that you're there, what you're basically doing is you're starting to trek up to the higher camps. You're not even thinking about your summit attempt. All you're doing is you're going up to camp one, then camp you're and you're hiking back from camp one a few times. Then you go base camp, camp one, camp two. You do that a few times. Three to six weeks, you're just acclimating yourself. So you'd be like, okay, so you're only going, you know, base camp up to up to camp one. Like, you know, the each leg of this is just insanely dangerous every time you you do this, and you're doing it multiple times. So when you get from base camp and you start, you know, acclimating and everything, the Sherpas that you've hired, if you, you need, like, this isn't something you do on your own. Mm-mm. Like you have to have like a legitimate, like a lot of people that have tried to do this on their own are like 200 plus corpses or the 200, some of the 200 plus corpses still on the mountain. I don't even think that it's legal to do it alone. They had now. a situation where I think some, Oh no, he had a Sherpa, but it was literally the Sherpa support ended at base camp. And it was this huge controversy about, like, there needs to be more of a responsibility of letting just anybody or, like, that can just get here to go up, you know, up the mountain. So, when you first Maybe that's why there's only 300 people that have died. Because there is a responsibility and everything. Because there are guides. Yeah, because the guide is like, turn your... No. Yeah. You're not going any... That's true. You would probably have... That guy would have to have full power over it to just be like, no, you're gonna die. Yeah. You would have to sign over, like, your free will? Like, at a certain point, too, you wonder how many people 
summited and then on the way down just because of oxygen deprivation or because of weakness they had to sit down and that guide has two three other people that they have to move and they're like mm-hmm. i can't stay here yeah like you're you already have like you you can't make it down i have to save these other three people a lot of situations probably like that so while you're doing all this stuff while you're you know starting to get acclimated and everything your sherpas are going out into what's called the kumbu icefall and what this is is when Everest, there's a big flat side on one of it, on one of the sides. It kind of goes down between it and this mountain called Lotse. And basically another mountain named Noopsi. And these are like all within the top ten tallest peaks in the in the world. They form almost like a bowl. And so all of the water drainage comes into this bowl and freezes into a giant glacier or a glacier. Do you like how they say it, the glacier too? I like crevasse. I like glacier better. Okay. So it freezes into a glacier right there. Yeah. That glacier, you know, it does get warm enough at certain points on Everest, especially because it's so high up in the atmosphere. The sun, although it's freezing wind and cold, the sun can burn you and it, it's pretty brutal. So it'll melt this, you know, melt water and avalanches. And basically it runs down through this area called the Kumbu Icefall. Well, then it snap freezes. So think of it like, I don't even know, just walking through a giant field of giant rock pillars, but they're all ice or like p- giant blocks of ice just shifted. You know what it is? It's when you fucking dump out Legos, dump out Legos on your floor how they all lay on carpet, all yeah. at different angles and sticking up and everything. That's the Kumbu Icefall. And when I say Icefall, this thing is literally like half a mile wide, maybe more. And to get through this, you have to, it's not just like stuff you can step over. You literally have to set up like ladders and ladder bridges mm-hmm. to go across while you have like this stuff. I, I'm showing a picture right now you guys can't see, but basically imagine just basically all these pillars of ice falling over on each other, different levels of ice that's cracked up. You know what a good comparison is? Do you ever see those videos of like uh, Lake Michigan in the winter where all the ice is getting swept up onto the bank and it's just all crashing into itself, all yeah. of the sharp pointy edges? That's kind of what the Kumbu Icefall is. So the Sherpas have been out getting busy basically going through and trying to establish paths through the icefall because it melts every year. Like they have to go in at the beginning of the season and, or like people have to establish paths to get their expeditions through. Like not every path is going to be accessible. That was last year. Things have shifted gaps have sealed up. There's been avalanches, icefalls, and they have to try to develop these safe areas to go through here. Well, and that shit happens while people are on hikes too. Mm-hmm. Like you can just have a crack in the ice that was going through your path that you have to figure out how to navigate. So the the only time that you can go through this is you have to wake up and leave at 4 or 5 a.m. That's still at a time when everything is so cold that it's frozen. Any time after 6, you're too deep into the ice fall when the melt starts to happen. And that's when you start to get these ice things shearing off and falling in on themselves where you're talking about the sounds in the afternoon, that's when you start to hear the cracking and the falling in on itself. So it basically like starts moving in the afternoon. Pass. Yeah, I'm out. Yeah. That's not. And so you're doing that multiple times 
to go ahead and like you have to have also your Sherpas and your porters. Your stuff's not any further up the mountain at this point. So even if you're not making trips and going further up the mountain, part of their job is to like take your stuff up to the next camps and get them set up just so you can maybe make a summit attempt if the mm-hmm. weather permits. So once you get from, um, that's like 1.6 miles going through this ice fall. Once you're acclimated, they say a person can make that in six or sorry, three to five hours. It's so much hurry up and slow down. I know. And you're waiting in line to go up those ladders and in queue and you look down and there's a fucking crevice below you that you can't see the bottom of it. And you're walking with those, uh, the crampons, Mm -hmm. like the spikes on your shoes, trying to walk on a ladder. Like, this is why I think these people, if they're going to make it to the summit, wait in that motherfucking line. I'm not saying these people aren't batshit crazy. You have to have a very, very hefty amount of insanity in your head to attempt this or a fuck you to nature or just an insane amount of drive where like nothing gets your dick hard anymore. And so now you need to live life on fucking the edge of death for the next 40 days. But like if they make it past this type of shit, I'm fucking rooting for you to get at the top. Just don't leave your fucking garbage up there. (laughs) That includes your dead fucking carcass. If you're going to get up there, get back down so you're not littering on the fucking mountain. That part I do not agree with. I have a very strong stance on that. So once you get to the top of the uh, Kumbu Icefall, you're basically what what you're in is called the Valley of Silence. So that bowl that I was talking about. So that bowl... Wind doesn't whip in there. Get in there. They say it's so eerily quiet. All you hear is the shifting and cracking of the fucking ice that you're standing on. Again, that's hard pass. I just, that's weird though, because you would think a bowl like that would have crazy acoustics. So you think that you would hear ching, ching, No, no, ching, no you do. You, you don't hear the wind whipping from outside. Oh, so it's, it's so quiet. Ex- you don't hear the external. You're, all you're hearing is the snowfalls falling off the side and the avalanches and the ice shifting. So the you camp, probably don't want to talk, too, in case you accidentally <laughs> set off an I avalanche. I think you're saving your fucking breath as much <laughs> as you can, even at this point. So in this area, this valley of silence, you're up at 20,000 feet. So you've already gone up 2,300 feet at this point. So this is what's called the Western Cume. It's a Welsh word. It means valley, and it's CWM. It's really weird. But he named it, so it's called the Western Cume. It's Welsh for Valley. And basically, it's this huge, flat, giant snowball and everything. Can you imagine being in something like that where you're surrounded by literally some of the tallest mountain? Like, when you look up, yeah, they're so far away from you, but is that claustrophobic as well, considering that you can't see anything else on the other side of them because everything is so enormous? I think the big thing is... It, snow blindness has to be a huge deal up there, right? Oh, 100%. And it's one of the biggest a, dangers. In a bowl where everything is white. You have to wear white. goggles. You, yeah, you have to figure out, though. Like, you just have to sight in on something. I don't think the there's a whole lot of... The person in front of you, probably. Uh-huh. I don't think there's a whole lot of checking I, things out. I was going to say, I think you have to be kind of, like, moving your head up to try to get a sight line that yeah. hits a rock or something like that. Because if you're looking down, yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's nothing but white below you but you also have to be looking down because yeah it's flattish but that's it's flash it's not to say there's not cracks Mm -hmm. that you could fall down into like these crevasses so it's got steep sides on like three sides of it and you're walking straight into it so this camp that you get before you start walking across this western cume is essentially camp one it's the one on top of the ice falls 
they said that the biggest thing, the craziest, is at night when it's dead silent, there's no movement around and not any wind whipping at the tent, and you hear the ice shifting. And all you're thinking, like, you can just, like, but you can, it's so loud that you can hear it and it could be miles away from you. And the sounds are going to echo where yeah. you are. <laughs> but, I mean, and all you're, like, you're trying to sleep just being like, you know, technically I could just be, my tent could be on, like, a 15-foot-thick hey, packed you, snow and a crevice could open up on it and my tent could disappear in the middle of the night. You just feel like you're living probably on a sinkhole all the time. That's what I'm saying. I think every moment of this, you just have to be, like, as soon as you take, that step out of that initial base camp, you're already in danger of going up there. You're in a higher likelihood of accidents. But from base camp, when you step out there, you're just like, I have to be completely okay with death at this point. I also think, too, when we talk about that only 300 people have died there, Mm -hmm. how many people have summited? It's like 7,000? No. So there have been 6,871 summits. Those have been done... By 4,042 people. I, that's the thing that kind of throws me off is 300 doesn't sound like a lot, but also that number doesn't sound like a whole ton. No. So there just must be like, it had to have been a very recent thing. Like there was probably like 52, 53 whenever they first summited, mm-hmm. right? And then for the next probably 50 years, there was probably maybe 15 people that had summited at that point. Yeah, and and like you're saying, man, I think a lot of those accidents, you know, there's a ton of, like, there's blizzards that have happened. There's been avalanches that have taken out, like, groups of guys, like, larger groups. So you have, like, higher death tolls in that sense. But still, at the same time, you're paying people to take you up here. If they feel at any point that you're not going to make it, you're, you're going back. Yeah. Because... It's a business for them. They're liable. Well, they're not liable and everything, but it's not going to look too good on their freaking internet or on their it's web page. It's a bunch of private companies that are doing this. Exactly. And so if you're not if you're not displaying that you can do this, they're not going to... If you can't do the initial acclimation type yeah. stuff, they're going to weed out people. So that's the other thing too. Like it does sound like a lot of people, but man, when you're talking about over the entire time of confirmed summits... 6,000 dating back to when people started summoning back in 53, it's not a lot. But that's what I'm saying. It's almost like there was probably maybe like a group of 50 to 75 that happened from like first time to like the 2000s. But then I don't it think the 2000s, like, I think, I think I get what you're saying. There's though. like a boom that's happening now. Yes, it, there had to have been, there was probably a time frame within that 10 years after 10 to 20 years when it was like country sending their best climbers Sparse. to do that and everything. Exactly. And then I think as the world opened up, travel became more readily accessible. Yeah. Nepal started being more touristy and things like that. I think when people could come and drive close enough to see Everest, all of a sudden it got a little more available for people to access it. People found that there was money in it. Let's start opening some businesses, mm-hmm. drawing you know, people to hike it. So I think a lot of it has happened a lot more recently. Um, you have better climbers too, better equipment. You're higher, you know, much more likely to, if you're going to summit, it's such a small likelihood, but if you're going to have the best equipment, it's going to be, it's going to lead you a lot closer to it. And also the best experience of knowing like, see those clouds like we're not hiking if we're like climbing this if those clouds are anywhere near us and other people might be like they're moving that way it's fine well i think they said the biggest year with the most summits was like 2017 really yeah so 
fairly recently we're hitting like the highest of the highs. So like you say, as technology is caught up just like it helped them catch up for Hillary to be able to make it, mm-hmm. we've just reached a point to where it actually feels safe. Yeah. So one thing too that I forgot to mention, that one, I just pulled up another picture. So on the ice fall, so sometimes what you'll get is you'll get these giant steps that happen too. And these steps, no joke, or what, what would you say that is, 40 feet? Um... Yeah. There's basically a Sherpa that is put together like three or four aluminum ladders, basically going up like a 40 foot, just like sheet of ice. So like, and he's carrying also like in his forearms under his chin, he's carrying another like two or three for the next one coming for the next one. So that's what these guys are doing when, you know, ahead of everybody. The other spooky thing that you do see in some of these pictures, like we see with those lines, those are just like literally freeze marks from where this has grown. Uh-huh. And at any point in time, just like an avalanche happens, that's usually the part that can give way. Uh-huh. So even what you're walking on the ground flat can split. Going up vertical, it can split as well. If there weren't these guys doing this, you know, I wonder what this summit number is. I don't know. If these guys, if it's just the hardcore climbers that prep for this and everything like that, I'm not... Everyone that does this has to be a hardcore climber. Yeah. But I wonder how many of these people owe the majority of their success to the the Sherpas that were helping guide them. Well, then it's, it's just as simple as these pictures. If you ever see a ladder that's just been set over an area where people know and where you didn't going, put it there, yeah. it's, it's a Sherpa that put it there. There's, well, and there's just no way that you could figure out how to do it without actually being there the first time. Yeah. Like you're, you're going to set something up and you might make it over three or four, but you're not going to make it over all of them by mm-hmm. yourself. So as you move from that Valley of Silence camp to camp two, camp two is basically just like further down through this valley. That's how long and long this valley is. You have to basically be walking across this glacier. I think it's 1.7 miles and it takes around two to three hours. And at that point you're completely gassed for having to walk that you're still, you know, getting acclimated. So you stay overnight at this camp. The next day you're at camp two, which is at 21,000 feet. So you've gone up another thousand feet and you're at the foot of what's called the Lotsa Ice Wall. So you know how you're in that bowl? Mm-hmm. Basically the mountain that you're hiking directly straight to. The whole time you've been hiking, Everest has been getting bigger on your left. You're getting closer to like where you can actually come around behind it. So you have to hike this valley that goes along. If you're looking at it like on a clock, I don't know why it refers to stuff because it's just easier to name the numbers. So imagine Everest is right in the dead center of the clock. Base camp you're starting at is basically like at five o'clock. And then to go up the lots of icefall, you're heading toward like four o'clock, three o'clock. And as you walk through this, you know, Western Cume or this big valley, you're kind of at like three and two o'clock. So you're actually walking around and you're going to actually attack it like from like one o'clock. That's like the route that, that you have to go. You can't just approach it. It's too unpredictable, too tech. Like it's, you're just not able to do it from the get-go. You gotta sneak up on it. You do, you have to give it, you have to, you don't have to do, you have to sweet talk it as you're walking by and be like, come on, girl. I'm just gonna, I'm just here to climb you. I'm not gonna leave anything up there. Just a 15 minute ride at the top. I, I assume you're doing a lot of fucking praying during this entire 
like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my yeah. god, oh my god. I could definitely see how people talk about it being a religious experience. But at the same time, I think getting up there and seeing the magistery and, like, trying to register in your brain everything that's mm-hmm. out in front of you, you kind of would probably have to talk yourself into somebody creating that. But at the same time, like, that's just nature. That has to be, you have to really feel some kind of weird connection to where you are. So you stay the night at this camp right at the foot of the hill. And the reason you have to stay because the next day you're going up about 3,500 feet in this one day. So you're at the foot of the ice wall. And basically the ice wall, if you're looking at it, you know, you have two tall peaks sitting next to each other. You know, the saddle that kind of connects them. Mm -hmm. That saddle, the low part of that saddle is basically where the ice wall is, where they're having to climb up. And at certain points, it's basically looks like a, back and forth like staircase like the staircase on the wall on game of thrones they have like stairs carved into it basically they have lines that are run up that entire thing you're clipped in to a line the entire time you're hiking up this you have to declip and clip back in and everything because if you fall and you tip over you're dead who sets up those lines sharpest man <laughs> anytime the lines are set in front of you and you didn't do it it's the sherpas so fixed ropes on this again it takes you like three to six hours when you're even when you're acclimated to this to go up this three thousand five hundred feet, and at the top of this is where Camp Three is actually set up, and it's basically like a ledge, a rock ledge that's kind of cut into this huge like wall, and tents have already been set up there for you. There's probably oxygen up there for you. Um, this is the last place they say Camp Three. It's, um, like the last place that you can actually get like an actual meal. Yeah. Like a prepared meal. But like, guess who's doing all that stuff for you to get your calories up and everything. You still got Sherpas doing that. You're hiring cooks to go up there with you. Yes. That's what one of your Sherpas is, is like the Sherpa cook. Again, you're, you're doing this whole thing. It's a 40 day you're not going to be able to pack in any of like anywhere close to enough shit yourself. No. And for as much money as I think they do spend to do it, I think they're pretty well taken care of. I don't think you're bitching about what the food tastes like that you're eating at that point. No, I think you're just happy. It's warm. Uh huh. If the food is warm, I don't think you, I think you actually eat like yak or something at a certain point, which is just furry cow. Well, the other thing too, is you have to start, can you yeah. imagine if yak was like just super, super meat? I wonder if it's it is. It's got to be, man. Cause yeah. yeah. It's a hardy animal. But you almost have to bargain with yourself. Like you're so hungry. You're also so tired that you have to think about the energy that it's going to take to chew that yak meat. Mm-hmm. You'd almost rather just have like a Slurpee or like a Go-Gurt that you can fire into your mouth, I bet. Well, they say even being up at just the height of base camp, like anytime you get like sick or cold or get injured, it like doubles the amount of time that it takes you to get over it just because your immune system is like, where, what, why are we fucking fuck up are here? are we? Yeah. Hey, what is this element that I also I'm have to I'm working hard with? just to keep us alive. Well, like... Take us back. It's it, just saying that, though, at the same time, it's also like part of your mood is going to change if you are able to, like, sit down and have a hot meal. Like, your spirits are going to be raised mm-hmm. by sitting down and doing something that you would normally do. 
but just to feel your body fill up with something and like your body is creating heat on the inside as you're digesting things. Like eating sounds like it would suck because all the work you'd have to put in after all that, but mm-hmm. you almost need it as like a morale boost. So, yeah, so you're walking, you're at the foot of Lotsa, which is right there. You have to walk all the way down that. Yeah. So you get there, and then as you go up the ice wall and everything, after you're up that 3,500 feet, because you've done so much stuff up there, you have to, you know, you're staying, each of these camps, again, you're staying the night at, and at each camp, you're getting less and less rest. Because you're just fucking tired and everything. See the tents that are dug into the side of the hill on that. It's almost like a, those people that go rock climbing and hang hammocks off the cliffs and sleep in them. Mm-hmm. Just at any point in time, if you didn't bury those stakes deep enough, dude, you could just slide of, your ass down dude, the hill. One of the documentaries <laughs> I was watching. So they're up on. I think they may have been up at like Camp Three, and a windstorm swept through, and it actually took one of the tents, but it took it so fast that even if there'd been someone inside it, it it would have just maybe slowed it down. Not even, like, enough to keep it on the ground. Yeah. But it would have just carried them down in a tent down the mountain. You got There, were, there you... were guys popping their heads out of the tent, calling for other guys, be like, hey, you want to come chill in here? Like, it just, I'm like, are they doing that so that there's more weight in the tent? Yeah. Or because they don't want to be alone? Or you just get out of your tent to go get dinner and a wind gust comes up and all the shit that was inside your tent that you just used just gets sucked off the hill. You're like, wait, that was all my all my uh, gear. Yeah, no <laughs> it shit. It was in that tent. What do I do all now? All my oxygen was in that tent. <sighs> Be like, uh, you're going to start heading down is what you're going to start doing. Yeah. Uh, it's it, There's so many factors that can fuck this up. So you leave from... So you're already three days three days into this, you're now on day four and you go from camp three up to what's called the South coal. And a coal is basically like I was telling you the saddle where those mountains meet. Mm -hmm. The coal is actually the top of where that saddle is. Okay. So at this point, like you said, you're up at like one o'clock and you're getting ready to sneak up behind Everest and take it from behind. If the lady mountain allows you, I should tell you, she doesn't want you there. So the South Coal, you are staying here. You're sleeping a night here. But this thing, you can kind of see in the picture there. See how it doesn't look like there's a ton of snow? It's because the winds whip through that so hard that yeah. it basically doesn't allow snow to accumulate. Um, it's a saddle between the first and fourth tallest mountains in the world. And you're at 26,300 feet. So you're staying the night here in the death zone. And between, I think, Camp 3 to the South Coal, it takes you three to six hours, and you're going about a mile, a little less than a mile. How do you sleep in the death zone? You just have to sleep with an oxygen mask you have on? To, you have to sleep with a certain percentage of your oxygen to keep you from, you know, getting, what are they, like hypoxia or whatever Jesus it is. Jesus Christ. But yeah, they have essentially, and again, all this shit has been brought up here for you and is ready for you when you get up here. And all this has been in preparation for the next moment. This is your base where you're going to make your summit attempts. So you sleep and then you start your summit attempt in the death zone. The most time that you can stay in this area is about two to three days. And I know that's like death zone and you're like, oh, it's going to kill you instantly. It's like, eh, not in two to three days. Yeah. That's it, at the point where like. You keep using this word attempt that's it's interesting. It's an attempt to summit. It's not, so many people don't make it 
even from this point up to the top. Yeah. What are you getting at? I it just, you do all this fucking work and you think, oh yeah, the next day, like your shirt was like, okay, the next day, guys, we're going up to the top. Once you get up this far, it's still not a guarantee. Like That's once when- you've done all this work, it's just attempts. And like you, uh, part of the attempt mostly is because you need like a break in weather, right? You have to, yeah, you have to have a break in weather to even get to this point. And the other thing too, man, is like to get from here up to the top, it's still a mile. It's that's the that's the picture. You, yeah. I'm gonna try to have Adam actually post this picture yeah. as the episode picture. So it's gonna have some tints, and then it's gonna be looking up toward the peak of Everest. You're looking at over a mile to get up there, it and looks it's like not the Grinch's house from Whoville. Is exactly what the fuck it looks like, and it's not only that. You're going up roughly a little less than three thousand feet over the course of that mile, and so yeah, like I said, man. Even at this point, if you've made it. When it starts getting steeper and rockier like this, how many times do you have you like almost rolled your ankle in the house? <laughs> Everything. All it takes you to do is just one wrong move. I stub my toe no less than once a week inside the house, and yeah, it almost takes me down. You have this to be. Is... And here, you want to hear the batshit crazy part about this? Do you know what time you have to leave this camp to try to make the summit? Probably like two or three in the morning. Midnight. Yeah. So you're hiking through this shit with a fucking headlamp on in the dark. That's. And I know because it's so tall, the sun probably hits it before anything else, but you're still going up this for hours sun in the coming, dark. Sun coming from the ground is never going to be as bright as sun, like, coming... Uh, how would that be? Like, it's almost like you are catching it, but even in the well, morning after the tallest, sunrise, it's still dark. No, no, correct. But what I'm saying is, like, as the sun rises, the peak is going to be the first thing into the sun because it's the tallest thing for the sun yeah. to the horizon for. Would it, though? Yeah, I guess depending on what side of the mountain you're coming up on, though, you might not be coming up in the sunlight. You are correct. If the sun, depending on which side it is, yes, if the sun was rising on the other side, then you would just see the silhouette. And I think that was actually one of the things they said is there's a way you can hike it. When the sun starts rising, it'll silhouette the mountain and all the clouds in front of you, and it's almost like a religious experience. It's like the mountain orgasm. What would you do, though? That's what I want to know. I want to talk to somebody that got up there. And, like, first attempt was day one. Couldn't go because of weather. The fuck do you go back and do? You go back and try to conserve your... And just rest. But... That's, dude, you... For, like, 24 more hours, yeah, though, you, you just put have to hang so out? so much. We'll talk about the, the cost and the financial part of it here in a second, but... I you've don't already think invested. a cell phone works up there. No, you've already invested... Uh, a satellite phone might. But, like, something to do. Like, you can't watch Netflix up there while oh, you're in Oh, fuck, your no. You're watching, you're bringing a mini DVD player. You're having to edit, like, actual, like, analog. And it still freezes. Yeah. So, but, man, you made it to this point. You're trying to, you know, stay in this area for as long as you can to get more attempts. Just it mental takes, torture. It takes, like, six to nine hours is kind of the range or more to actually do the summit run. Nice. As you leave the um, camp there you actually go up to what's called the balcony at 27,500. Then you hit what's called the Hillary step. That's a 39 foot rock wall. And that's at 28,840 feet. And then after that, I think there's one more, like a second step that you have to get through another technical part of it. And then basically you're walking a ridge where like, there's just a trail dug into the snow on the side and it just dips down and then takes you up to the peak. Yeah, it's a a hell of a climb. All I'm thinking about, too, when I'm looking at this line is I'm trying to, like, figure out which... Who were the people, like, coming back? 
because you can just they all look like they're facing the same direction. I'm like, where where are the people that are like on the return trip? Maybe there is. I hate to say it because it still shits on that that magic stuff. But if there's an exit trail that's not the same way out, like if it's not the same way out as it is coming in. Maybe it's on the other side of the ridge. Yeah. Like, just right on the other side of the ridge, there's another snow trail, you know, carved in there and everything. And then it connects down further or something like that. But some of the spots that you were talking about coming down those ridges, it's so tenuous because there's just only so much room on that path that you probably wouldn't want people coming and going right next to each other. It's on a two-lane fucking road. No. Uh Uh-uh. And, like, you can kind of see on on that picture where it shows you, you're literally just on the tippy top of this. I think they call it a razor ridge. I mean, it's not like that thin that, but like, it's so thin that like literally you could straddle both sides of it at certain points. Well, and that was sort of what fucked up Hillary and, um, what's his name? Oh, Mallory or Mallory. Urban. uh, It was one of the steps getting up there. Well, they thought that they had reached the summit and then they're like, oh, shit, that's not the summit. That's just, like, the first step. They have something called, like, the South Summit, Yeah, I think. And it's just basically, like, the next highest point, And then it dips a little bit, and it goes up to the actual, like, true summit. I just, it's incredible to think that just being the first person, like, you'd had that false hope that you made it. And then you'd be like, fuck, that's 500 more feet. What do we do? And it, it's nuts to think that there have been. So I was trying to kind of figure out from the people that have summited, the first people that summited used oxygen. They're 95% of the summits have been on oxygen. There's been 5% of these motherfuckers, these crazy, insane people, not locals that have summited without oxygen. Uh, I'm assuming some of them have been, but there's been people that have not been from the area that have summited. I think it ends up being like out of the amount that actually did summit what 6,000, you take 5% of that. Fuck, what's that? 5% of 6,000? Yeah. Is... Way too many people that then have yeah, fucking like, climbed that thing without oxygen? Yeah, it's triple digits. I mean, it's it's an absurd number. It just It's, it's 30, right? Would it only be 30? 5% of 6,000? Is it 300? Um, yeah, because 600 times 10 is oh, 6,000. 300 motherfuckers yeah. have, and I'm sure a couple guys have done it multiple, mm-hmm. but like 300 fucking people have summited that thing without oxygen. There was some guy that they were talking about. He really hot dicked it because he went up, he hung out at the summit, then dropped back down for like 24 days and then summited it again. So like he didn't even go all the way back down. He just got to summit twice because he dropped back down and was able to live up there for a little bit longer before he could pop back up. That's just showing off. That's, yeah, that's a uh, fuck. It has to be pretty cool, though, to have to live through that shit and be like, yeah, I want to go back up immediately. I want to do that same hike again. Is that more of a want or like at that point, is it more of a, uh, like a compulsion? I think if you're doing that, is that for the love of it or is that for just like you're obsessed or is it both? Probably both. I think there's a fine line between those two things. I think you got to be a little bit of both to do this just because the, the cost associated, uh, the South side expeditions are as low as $35,000. Um, the Western guided trips are between 45 and 60,000. I think those are the ones that are more on like the common, 
um, Southeast Ridge. Uh, keep in mind, too, these are all just good deals. Like, there's really no cap as to what some of this stuff. Oh, you yeah. could have a, a three quarters of a million dollar expedition and probably do it in pretty nice fashion. Mm-hmm. This is just like if you want to go up, but you don't want to spend your If mortgage. you got all your own shit. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Um, Nepalese guide trips can be as little as $30,000. So, but Sherpas usually get around 5000 per trip. Is that right? Yeah. It's pretty, I would say that's not great, but it's probably not bad. And I wonder what the conversion would be, because this is in American dollars, right? Yeah, so it would be to rupees, I believe is what they Something like that. So hopefully it's a lot more in rupees, because for the love of God, they do fucking everything. You also have to keep in mind, this is, how long did you say the season was? It's two months out of the year. One of them, I think, is in September. The other is in, like, March or May. So these guys are making these trips for two months a year, and they have to be able to sustain whoever they sustain. Like, they have to risk their lives for two months of the year. Yeah, but that's just for the season on Everest. There are so many other peaks and areas around the Himalayas that I'm sure they do other type of guided trips and everything, especially considering that since Everest only has a season, people that are looking to hike Everest have to be doing these other peaks as like a warm up to see if they even can. So there's probably just an entire industry around there that's like, here's our Everest package. For the first part of the year, we hike you here, here, and here. We give you time to recover. Then we come back and do this mountain. Once you've done this, then you know you're able to go ahead and hike Everest. That's Everest why I think, being the tallest seems like it's almost maybe more of like the mountain that gets you hooked. <laughs> no shit. I don't think, and I'm probably gonna be way wrong on this. But I think they said that K2 is a more difficult climb than Everest. Technically, yes. They said it's more difficult from a technical standpoint and, like, the shit you have to do. Um, so there's a more dangerous mountain than the tallest mountain in the world. Yeah, but I don't think it has the – it doesn't have the prestige. No, because it's not number one, but it is a you more would have difficult – You would have to explain it like you just did. Been like, you know, I've, I've had K2. That's – wow, that's awesome. Are you going to do Everest? Well, I've done K2. Oh, couldn't get the Everest. Well, you know, technically K2 yeah. is harder and more technically, but like, is it taller? Yeah, you're trying to justify it from a different Yeah, means. but you, you have a mountain that has eight and a half inches on it. Is yeah. it. Yeah, does it have that extra eight and a half inches? So you also have, you know, you have your cooking Sherpa, like you said, can cost you two grand. You got loading and unloading costs for 3,000. You got your permits. You got to have a permit and also like some type of like passport in their country. And that can be like what eleven thousand per climber. That I believe would probably be factored into like the forty five thousand. You think so? Yeah. And then some crazy things I didn't know. So we were talking about like you know rescue costs and everything. Helicopter helicopter evac costs around what like four to six thousand if it, you have to happen. Good if luck they at, can get to you. Good luck explaining that to your insurance company. Yeah. And so you got me going down a rabbit hole. I was like, well, how fucking far up can they reach you? They say that the furthest up that they can actually get is I think someone was actually pulled off of the coal before and that a helicopter has come up to the summit, but not like a rescue helicopter. It was part of like a guy trying to get a a, a modified helicopter. The thing had been stripped out. He went on a special diet to get down to a weight enough. And I think he barely got up there. He was able to like sit there for three minutes and then he, I'm guessing just tried to kind of steer to fall down the mountain and then control the fucking dive. Um, but you're, yeah, you're not getting helicopter rescued at that point, but yeah, it's just, you know, there's this weird thing. Like there used to be this big allure to it and I think there still is, which is why people are still doing it. But that, that picture of all the people kind of in the traffic jam, I can see why that gets like a lot of like 
people's focus on it because they're like, well, it's so easy. It must like have this cue all the time. No, like this cue only exists for a certain small section of the day during a certain section of one month, twice a year. And all these people that have put in all this money and all this effort and all this training and made it up to this point. Fuck, can you imagine like someone asked you, you'd be like, yes, how'd the Everest attempt go? And been like, so I, so check it out. The line was huge. Can, can you imagine that being like, I was like, how far did you get from the top? Ah, oh, man, I was like, I don't know, like 50 vertical feet from the top. But dude, you should have seen the lines. The lines were ridiculous. I don't want to, this is a fine line I have to, to tell here because every person that's ever been up there in that line is just leaps and bounds tougher than me. So you can't really Much crazier. talk shit on Much them. Much crazier. Yeah. But at the same time, like you're standing up there in a line on Mount Everest and you're just like, God damn it. There's so many other people up here that I have to be around. That's literally the only time you're ever going to feel it. Because when you come back down, I don't think you tell that story. I think you just tell it like you climbed it up there just like from base camp. Oh, yeah. You never explained the line. Yeah. Like that's. But the only reason we know about that shit is because people have taken pictures. Because nobody's coming down and be like, yeah, there was 50 other people with me. I think that's like the gentleman's agreement between everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone just kind of looks at each other and then like line doesn't exist. And they're like, of course it doesn't. Yeah. This is uh, fucking what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's just you don't tell other people that you waited. Exactly. But I mean. Just like how you poop up there. I don't think you tell other people how you do that, because I don't quite understand how that would work. Did you look into that? Uh, no, but it just... I Very mean, carefully. You'd have to be bare-ass somewhere. And you got to be doing it in your tent into, like, a, one of those airplane throw-up bags. But then what do you do with it? Dude, I also don't know this. I don't know if you're eating enough to poop. I don't know if you're having enough calories to have excess waste in your body. I think your body's using every bit of it. And if you're having to poop, very little. <sighs> Man, I really should have looked up shitting on Everest. Even peeing, though. Because peeing, you're either going to pee yourself and take mm-hmm. a chance on it freezing your body and making you colder yeah. like as soon as the wind hits it, or you're going to have to pull your gentleman out or squat down somewhere. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some type of product that basically it's like a wearable catheter, yeah. except it goes on the outside and you wear it, and it's basically like this is going to connect to a tube that's going to stay sealed, and the tube is just going to be like you have to unpinch it and just empty the tube. I'm guessing there's some type of bladder system for that. That would make a lot of sense. Just like because, reverse like, whizinator. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. The other thing, too, about that whole line thing that we were talking about, you're up there and you've got to feel like... I could see like someone looking at that being like, does that even make those people feel special because there's so many other people? Yeah. I think you know what you had to go through to get to that point. And looking at every single other one of those people, you're like, everyone had to go through all that tough shit. It's almost got to be like, yeah, like a like a brotherhood. I think there's probably a lot of that feeling just because it's, you would have to have it because it's just that there's only so many people that have done it. Like yeah. there's not even a big number of people. That's still a very small town if you just want to talk about population. Dude, and that's not even to say that all those people are fucking still alive. Well, yeah, there's less true. of those people alive at this point. So like meeting someone that actually, I was really surprised of how little information like for podcasts there was on Everest. Frankly, with just giving basic information on Everest, it was the story about like, you know, Hillary and Mallory and those yeah. guys and everything. But yeah, it's, it's freaking nuts. Like the hats off to those fucking insane people that are doing that. Don't leave your trash up there, please. I'm rooting for you. Cool thing too. Um, 
Uh, maybe not cool, because I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to get into the 50-50 shit here. 12% of the total number that have come up, 740 women have summoned at Everest. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of women. Hell yeah. I, I know it's not as many as the men, but that's still a respectable women number. Are, women have better survival instincts yeah. than men. <laughs> okay. How that many times has a, a woman said, hey, watch this? Yeah. Like, women don't say, hey, like, one out of every ten women do the, hey, watch this thing. Guys, we we do stupid shit. It it's the it's back to fucking like I'm gonna to come full circle. It's back to the Mallory thing when they asked him why would you want to climb something like that. Put that in a different like you put it in a posh British voice because it's there. It sounds so poetic. Put it in a redneck voice because it's there. Like it's the same message getting there. It's like I see that tall motherfucking mm-hmm. thing. I gotta climb it. It's the same thing with kids and trees. Yeah, kids and trees, uh, literally uh, adult men and fireworks. Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna you're gonna do something stupid this time. At least you're tied in and you have somebody watching over. You have a Sherpa supervisor to make sure that nothing goes terribly. You have wrong. disposable income enough to hire someone to make sure you don't die. Yeah, I I think the tough part about it is like you're talking about with the trash. The human element on the earth is just, I think we're pretty much already know for a fact, we're just kind of a bad deal for it. Mm-hmm. Um, global warming is causing the yeah, mountain. Yeah, we can't even keep trash off of the most inaccessible yeah. place like That's a, on earth. The bad sign. But uh, they're caught in such a, a bind because just like the dream of anybody in the world is, is to raise your village, raise your city, raise everybody mm-hmm. up. This tourism makes so much fucking money for them. And if they don't do it, someone will step in and it'll just move over to the other side of the border. I, But there again, you want to try to bring your people up. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's at the cost of like a sacred site that we don't really know what the ramifications exactly. of that many people climbing up yeah, there. It's so really it's like this weird push and pull of morality. When ultimately, I am happy for the Tibetan people if they're making money and it's not going back to China. It might be China. making the best of a bad situation, which I think it's probably more akin to that or at least was initially and everything, depending on how well it does for their economy and everything like that. Um, hopefully, there's a you know beneficial trade-off there. There has to be a hierarchy, though. Like There has to be a top Sherpa, like a guy that's been up there the most. There has to be a record, right? Uh, for who's you, been up there the most. Yeah, like who's summited the most, because that, it would have to be a Sherpa, right? I would imagine. Because those guys are going up there, they get multiple cracks at it every year. So you'd think multiple cracks at it every year would have to be... Yeah, so um, the people that are actually have the record for it, so it's Kami Rita Sherpa and um, Lampka Sherpa, most times to climb Everest. How many? Uh, let's see. I probably should have looked this up before, but in true fashion, we always at least forget a couple things, right? Oh, yeah. Well, and we just get interested. Uh, so, Kami Rita Sherpa, a.k.a. Thapk, topped his prestigious peak, topped the prestigious peak on May 21st of 2019. It was his 24th summit. Good God. The most ascents of Everest by an individual overall. Even more remarkable, he'd made his 23rd climb six days, just six days earlier. Guy is fucking a beast. And let's see, who else do we got here? Who was the other person on there? Oh, and Lakpa Sherpa, since her first attempt, first summit. Hell yeah, since her first attempt on May 18th, 2000, she's achieved the most ascents of Everest, nine. Boy, that's a real drop off from the first guy, huh? She grew up living inside of Everest. 
No way. We're a local kid. Local kid makes good. So fucking props to them. That's yeah. how it should be. That's how it fucking should be. Yep. All right, man. You got anything else? No. Uh, if you got a sense of adventure, I recommend this. This is as close as I'm going to get to ever. I was going to say, yes. <laughs> if you have a sense of adventure, but you're not that adventurous, join us. We'll, we'll take you on a ride. All right, folks. Well, thanks for joining us again this week, and uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Well, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.